All right, well, our goal then will be to be done by 11 o'clock with this portion for the Q&A. But just remember that for the Q&A, if you have kids in the classrooms, that they are cared for until 11.30 during the Q&A, uh, if you're remaining uh, for that time. So we will get to Judges. Uh, but I wanted to read this passage uh, personally for two reasons. Uh, one, just we, we recite the Lord's Prayer roughly once a month together in our congregational confession on a normal service. Uh, and when you go back to read it sometimes, that becomes the focus and you skip over some massive promises right here in the text. So if you glance your eyes back down in verse 8, this is amazing that God tells us this. Do not be like them. Don't, don't heap up empty phrases uh, because he, he gives us the, the reason to not be like them. Because your father, talking about God, knows what you need before you even ask. Do you know that this morning? Like deep down in your heart, this reality is meant to be balm for your soul, for your anxiety, for when you're spiritually tired and you feel overwhelmed with the world. A statement like that is supposed to give you calm and rest. My God, who declares me his child if you are blood-bought, he knows exactly what you need before it even comes off your tongue. It's just like the Psalmist 139 when he says, before even a word comes off my lips, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. It's an amazing reality that's meant to set us free from fear in the world. And what Jesus says in a simple statement like that, uh, we're going to see something similar in our Judges passage. And I think our passage in Judges today is is really great news if you are ever spiritually tired or if you ever struggle with anxiety or know someone who is anxious about the world. Judges 13 is a fantastic place to take them. Now, it's going to be told in story form, so we'll take a look at it. Uh, let's go back to Judges 13 as we make our way through the book. We've, we have finally now made it to the last judge in terms of the cycles of judges. If you remember, uh, Othniel is the first one, and then there's Ehud, and then Barak, and Barak and Deborah. And then we had Gideon, who's also very well known, and then Jephthah was the last one. And, and finally we come to Samson, who actually has the longest narrative, and probably in terms of moral character as he's described, is probably the worst. In fact, the best judge, who has the smallest section, who rarely anybody knows, is Othniel, gets like four or five verses, and he was probably the most moral one in terms of in the story. Uh, Samson, uh, very well known in the culture even. Uh, I actually know a guy who, who said, you know, there's, there's a movie about him from the 50s. He said that, uh, you know, he, he wanted to have long hair because of Samson, you know, growing up. I want to have long hair too, not because of Samson, just because I want to have hair again. But... Uh, you know, he, he's very well known, and uh, we'll see if, if we get it right uh, as we go through the book, if, if the way that children's books describe uh, Samson as we go through. But it starts a little bit unique uh, compared to the other judges, which you'll see. Uh, but let, let's just work our way through the story. Uh, we'll kind of, I'll just stop us along the way and try to experience the story together. It begins in verse 1. And the, and the people of Israel did, uh, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 
years. And we'll pause there. Uh, this we've seen again and again. This starts every single cycle of the judges, uh, beginning with Othniel. So this is the sixth and final time we will see that phrase. Uh, but we don't want to just skate past it. Just let it land on you as you read that. The people again did evil. That's the way the author keeps saying it throughout the story. Again they did it. If, if, if you ever have any doubt of the depravity of man, the brokenness of the human heart, judges should help us. We are indeed broken. Even if God were again and again and again to show us his grace, we would again and again and again commit evil before God. And sure enough, the people have done it again. And as we saw the pattern throughout the book, when they again do evil in the sight of the Lord, that God then again hands them over to one of the surrounding nations. And in this case, the Philistines. For 40 years, this is by far the longest uh, of all the times that God gave the people of Israel over uh, to another country. And we should be remi reminded of some of the ways that it's been described throughout the book. Uh, when some of the countries overtake Israel or have, have the upper hand, uh, some significant things happened to them. If you remember, uh, the, the folks uh, in Gideon's time, they would come in and raid the land. The, the crops would come up and they'd come in and take all the crops. So the people had to go hide and live in caves, if you remember that. Throughout the book, uh, you, as you watch Israel, they never really have weapons. You, you got Shamgar killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Later, Samson's going to use the jawbone of a donkey. They, they, don't, they don't have weapons, because that's the way you kind of you keep a, a, an army down. Like, you take away their ability to make weapons. So how are they going to defend themselves? And Israel now, for 40 years, I mean, I, I'm going to be 44 here this summer, uh, I mean, that, that would virtually be my whole life living in oppression. If you can just try to imagine that. I mean, if, if, if something was the same way for 40 years, you begin to just assume that's how it's always going to be. Right? I mean, some of you probably have the idea of, like, there's, you've just lived through just seeing corruption in our culture and the government or whatever and power, and you just go... That's just what it is. I, I, there's no use fighting against it. That just is just what it is. And sure enough, that's the way we find Israel uh, in this setting, which will become more clear as the chapters go. But let's go on to verse 2. That's our, that's our first problem. We've seen it before. There's evil and oppression in the land. Verse 2, uh, there we see our second problem. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So this introduces our second problem. Uh, this, uh, we learned two things about Zora's wife, or uh, Manoah's wife. Uh, the first one is what we don't learn about her, is her name. She, she's not named throughout the whole narrative. She's just always referred to as Manoah's wife. Now sometimes authors do that as a way of uh, putting the character down, say like at the end of Ruth, uh, the first kinsman redeemer in Ruth uh, above Boaz, he doesn't, he'll never name him. Sort of as a way of saying, oh, Mr. So-and-so, he's not even worth naming. And other times there's other purposes for not naming uh, the, 
character, which for this one we don't really know because she actually seems to be a gem in the, in the whole narrative. Um, so it, the author must have some other purposes, but he never names her. But the other thing that we, we learn about is that she's barren. She has no children. This, of course, in that culture, just like other cultures today still, uh, is, is very disheartening. It's very sad. If you remember Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist's mom, when she finds out she's finally going to have a child, she says, God has taken away my shame. So it's very shameful in cultures for women to be barren. It's thought, thought to be a curse from God uh, by many people. In fact, uh, under the, the, the covenant, the old uh, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, God does say, if you obey my law, the women's, uh, they, they, will, they will be fruitful. Their wombs will be open. But if you disobey, they will be closed. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but that, that's, that's the way that she would be walking around town. People looking at her, you still haven't had a child must be under God's curse. Now, as you're reading uh, through biblical narrative and you actually see a statement like that, while it's, you, you want to somehow feel the shame with her, there's also like, if you were to put this on as a play, um, it, there's certain music that would be cued up in the background that would catch the, the audience's attention and you'd say, oh, a barren woman. While it's shameful and hard for her, this is a theme that goes throughout Scripture. When barren women are introduced in the story, redemption is about to happen. Something good's going to happen. Right? So you, you, the first one you meet is, is who? Sarah, Abraham's wife. And then the next one in line would be Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And then you have Rachel. Jacob's wife. And then after the story, you're going to have Hannah, who gives birth to Samuel. And of course, Elizabeth, who's John the Baptist's uh, mom. When, you start to, when a, a barren woman is introduced, you, you, you sort of get this excitement as the reader. Okay, God's going to do something special. And part of the reason is that God likes to demonstrate to his people that he loves to bring redemption where it seems impossible where you have, there's no way that God could come through, that anything could change. And of course, that's when God wants to shine forth. Because that's what God does, right? That's why Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that he has. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Because God's power is what's seen. And so, God delights to show how powerful he is through the impossible. And that's what we're about to see uh, in this story. So there we have, we have three problems, really. The first problem is the people are doing evil. Second problem is be, the result of the first problem is that they're under the oppression of the Philistines. The third problem is you got a barren woman. So in biblical narrative, the tension has been set. Something has to burst. Something has to change. And verse 3 through 5 is going to introduce us to the solution to this problem. So let's read that. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman... And said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful to drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. Because the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, 
and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And we'll pause there. That is our answer. That is going to be our solution for the second and third problem. And we'd love to, for it to be the solve the first problem. This woman now, the barren woman, is going to have a son. And this son is going to be set apart to God from the very womb. This Nazarite, uh, there you see in verse 5, a Nazarite, um, Nazarite vow you can read about in Numbers 6. Uh, the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow that the people of Israel could take, and you actually probably see Paul do this in the book of Acts. It was a, it was a vow to God to set, set yourself apart unto God for a season. You could do it for your whole life, or you could do it for, say, the next year. But there's generally three things that you're refraining from as a, an external demonstration to God that I, I want to live for you, I want, I want to serve you, I'm wholly yours. The first one would be to not uh, drink or eat anything from the vine, uh, whether that be wine or strong drink or eating the grapes. So staying away from anything on the vine. Uh, second would be to not touch any, any, any dead body. Now the angel of the Lord doesn't raise that one here. Uh, instead he raises to not eat anything unclean. That's not actually part of the Nazarite vow, which is interesting because it seems like they almost need to be reminded not to eat unclean thing, which Nobody was supposed to be eating unclean things. That was, that was just part of the, 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 the covenant. And then third uh, was to not cut your hair. And in fact, uh, cutting the hair, uh, when you finally cut the hair, that would be actually be a sign of the vow is over. And that's what you see Paul do in the book of Acts. Um, so what you see here is this Nazarite vow that normally is voluntary. This is a divine directive. This is, this is God stepping in the story and saying, I'm going to set this child apart, and this is going to happen from the womb for this child, which is why now Manoah's wife should not be drinking or eating anything unclean. Because it's actually the child is set apart, but he's in the womb, and so she's now connected to this promise. But what we're supposed to see is that God is the one directing this. God is setting apart this child, and therefore God is going to bring deliverance through this child for Israel. So the barren woman is now going to have a child. That solves that problem. And this child is going to, we read, begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's going to solve our problem, um, the, the third problem. So now we're going to move forward. Uh, the solution, uh, Manoah's wife is now going to retell the story. She goes off running, verse 6. The woman, who was barren, came and told her husband, a man came to me. His, his appearance was like, it was like the appearance of an angel, the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat, eat nothing unclean, because the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. This would be a scene I would love to have walked in on, to see this woman come walking in. I, I don't know, we're not told where Manoah was at this time. I don't know if he was in the house or if he was out in the field. But I cannot, for the life of me, picture that Manoah's wife would come in and just be like, Hey, Manoah, I met somebody today. You know, oh yeah, he said something about a baby. I mean, 
I think she comes in and is crazy excited, ecstatic. Like she, she says that this, this, the appearance of this, this, this man was different. He's, he appeared to be like an angel of God. I mean, if you could just picture her coming in. I, I, I mean, my, my kids, like what they're running track and field, when they come home from practice to find out what, what uh, events they're running the next day, I mean, they just come in, guess what I'm running? You know, that's just for track and field, right? Dupree comes in, has a good day from school. He's like, dad, dad, look, I, I, I did good at school today. I mean, Danica comes in and she says, I had a good workout today. You know, like, we're excited. We want to tell people about something exciting. This woman has been for decades trying to have a kid, cannot have a child. She's just been visited by an angel of God that now she's going to conceive. I mean, this is a crazy scene. But, of course, information is lacking. I mean, picture yourself now as Manoah. So who was this guy? What was, what was his name? You didn't catch his name? Where's he from? I mean, now, now this puts Manoah in an interesting spot here. So it continues, verse 8, then Manoah, I mean, I love this of Manoah. Even though he gets portrayed at times where you kind of wonder what he's like, but I love this response. Manoah prayed to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, please let that man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what are we to do with the child who will be born. So whatever, at least at this point, there seems to be an element of Manoah believing what his wife is telling him and an acceptance of, okay, I don't know what to do, but God, bring this, bring this man back so he can tell us what, what we need to do. So that's the second time it's retold. Now it's going to be retold again. Uh, verse 9, can you believe it? God actually listens to Manoah, his prayer. And the angel of God comes again to the woman as she is now sitting in the field. But Manoah, he, he was not with her. And so the woman got up, ran quickly, told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day, he's appeared to me. Manoah gets up and arises and went after his wife, and they come to the man, and they said to him, are, are, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Okay, and Manoah then says, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Um, Manoah's not getting much here. Right? The angel's not answering everything specifically as he's wanting. I picture Manoah a little bit like Peter here, just trying to carry along the conversation here. Uh, Manoah then uh, says to the angel, Hey, uh, let us detain you. We'll prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord says to Manoah, If you detain me, we'll not eat your food. But if, you're, if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. 
You see, Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, What's your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. We'll pause there. This would be a great time to talk to Manoah, actually, as well. Like, <laughs> what is this guy thinking now? I mean, he's really not getting much out of the angel of the Lord. Um, but that's a curious moment, too, when the angel of the Lord won't even tell him his name. It's, yet he's given some sort of like a veiled identity. It's, Manoah, if I, if, if I, you, you wouldn't be able to take it all in. Okay, let's just say that. It's, 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 a one, it's a wonderful name. My mission and who I served before is too awesome for you. So let's just leave it at that. You don't need to know the rest. I mean, that would, I, that, that would be quite amazing. Now, uh, if you were here uh, in 2015, 2016, we went through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I, I think when we came to the chapter 13, the angel section, I, I told this story. Uh, when we were in Chicago, and uh, I, I was in seminary, and I, like the weight of the the the, uh, the reality of Jesus being God, had landed on me, and realizing, okay, I'm gonna I'm, to to say that Jesus is God, that better be right, otherwise that's blasphemy. If it's not true, it's blasphemy. If if it is true, and I don't say it, then that's blasphemy. And just the weight of that was landing on me. And so I was very stressed out. I checked out a book uh, from the library called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And that book just terrified me. It was just too heavy for me at the time. So I returned it. I couldn't finish it. Because the, the idea of the proclamation of Jesus being God and then the holiness of God. And I was asked to speak on Philippians chapter 2. This amazing passage that really heightens the, the declaration that Jesus Christ, in fact, is God. So I'm wrestling with this truth, and I know i got to preach it. And so I go to the, you know, the service, and I'm, I'm in the middle of, of preaching this sermon, declaring that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God in the flesh. And this man walked in, and he sat right at the back of the last row there. And he's very dark-skinned, and bright white teeth, just, just beautiful teeth. And he's, the, the whole time I'm preaching and declaring that Christ is God, he's just got, he's smiling with this beautiful smile, like this. And I was super stressed out because the struggle I was having, and that man, I mean, you know, sometimes when you're talking in front of people, you can have all these conversations going on in your head at the same time. And I was just like, I kept looking at him going like that, that man is encouraging me right now to proclaim this reality. He's getting me through this with joy. And the sermon finished, and he, you know, people kind of came up, we were talking, and he came up to me after this, this, the service, and he just said something, some, something along the lines of, thank you for that sermon, that was really nice. And I said, my name's Dan, it's great to meet you. What's your name? And he said, it doesn't matter. And he walked away. Never saw the man again. 
Now, I don't know if he was an angel or not, okay? All I'm saying is I went home that day thinking he may have been. I don't know, but I was just like, that was crazy, because that man, it really encouraged my heart to proclaim the, the, the true reality of who Christ was. And, you know, we're told that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to care for those who are God's people. I just imagine Manoah here at this moment where the angel won't even tell him his name, just totally speechless. This, this is a fantastic moment. They've just been given a promise that's just totally blowing their mind. They don't know who this man is. They don't know where he's from. But they're about to see that indeed the promise is real. Because now the promise is going to be confirmed, beginning in verse 19. So Manoah, he took a young goat with the grain offering. So he has to kind of leave the man and go get the young goat, get the grain offering. And he offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. So you've got to try to picture the scene here. Now they got this burnt offering, a young goat, and they got the grain offering. This would be a way of worshiping God. This is demonstrating a trust in the promise. They believe God. for God's going to give a child to this woman. He's going to bring redemption to Israel. And now they've placed the young goat on the altar. If I were Manoah, I'd probably be looking at the guy and the burnt offering at the same time. You place it there, you step back and you watch. In verse 20, the flame, and the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. So the flame's coming up. The angel of the Lord went in the, up in the flame of the altar. Let me read that again. Verse 20, the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, and the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, and Manoah and his wife were watching. He's now gone. He's went, he stepped right into the flame. What would you do at that point? I mean, they do the right thing. They fall on their faces to the ground. I mean, what, what else would you do? They realize they're in the presence of something beyond what they can even say. This is a little bit like Jesus and the disciples in the, in the boat, remember, when they're in the, that storm? The waves are going crazy. They're terrified, so they finally wake up Jesus, and Jesus gets up, and what does he do? He says, be still. Waves stop. The wind stops. And what do you think the disciples do? They, they clap and they cheer. They're excited. This man's awesome. I'm so glad I'm in this boat. Well, the text says they were filled with great fear. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm because they realize that God is not something to be toyed with. This is Manoah and his wife now terrified. And in fact, watch how Manoah responds. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Manoah then knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we're going to die. We've seen God. That's totally what I would have done. I would have been freaking out. I get a little bit more irrational in moments like that. And uh, Danica would have jumped in just as uh, Manoah's wife does here with a little bit more rational thought. Says, hey, hey buddy, calm down. <laughs> Uh, verse 23, uh, dude, like if, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. 
He wouldn't have shown us all these things or announced all these such things to us. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. And there you have uh, the, the beginning of Samson's story. So what I want to do real quick here is just step back and say, okay, what is the author trying to communicate through this narrative? Now, in, in narrative literature, a couple things you want to pay attention to. Of how, does that, how does the author organize the passage to bring emphasis? Uh, there's two things, particularly in this text, that I think brings the emphasis quite clear. The first thing is just the way he keeps repeating this idea of this child. If you've noticed, uh, first it's the angel of the Lord comes to the woman, says you're going to bear a child, he's going to be set apart to God, and Nazarite, and this is how, what you must do. You must not uh, cut his hair, you must not drink from the vine, and so on. Right? And then what it goes on to his wife goes and tells Manoah. This is what the angel said. He's going to be a Nazarite. I shouldn't drink wine. I shouldn't eat any unclean food. And then Manoah and his wife go to the angel. And the angel tells it again. Exactly what I told the woman. Let her do that. This is what the child's going to do. So you just have this repeated theme. He just keeps hammering this idea of who this child is. He's going to be set apart to God for bringing redemption and even in this wild scene with the angel going up in the flame, seems to me it's actually trying to confirm this for them as the promise. It's not just words that the angel's saying, but you can trust it. You may not know where the guy's from, but you can trust his word. So that's the, the first piece. This child is going to be set apart for God uh, just by repetition. The second thing is the pattern that gets broken. So in, in other words, there's, there's a way that the author tells the story that something that you would expect to be said gets left out. So there's a change that, that we've seen all the way through the book. All of a sudden, he twists it by leaving something out. It would sort of be like if, if we came here this morning and I had a blue shirt on, you'd go, what? <laughs> if you're newer around here, I, I've worn the same shirt for I don't know how long. No. Well, this is a, the second generation, actually. <laughs> There's, there's a, a quick change, and the change is, you remember the cycle of all the judges. The people, did is, the, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then God hands them over to oppression. Then three, they cry out and ask God for help. And then four, God raises up a judge. Every single cycle follows the same four, uh, four pieces for the pattern. This one starts out, they do evil before God. God hands them over to be oppressed by the Philistines. And it jumps right to number four. God starts to raise up a judge. The, the people of Israel aren't, they don't ask God for anything. That's been totally eliminated from the story. The cycle has now been broken. And that's supposed to come forth for the, for the audience, for the reader, to see that God brings deliverance even when the people aren't soliciting it. This is who our God is. The God, the God who is not only gracious on rebellious people who continually do evil before him and continually cry out, God brings deliverance. But this God, he goes even farther. When the people won't even ask for help, it's God's pre-planned grace, unsolicited grace. This is how God brings deliverance. Behold, you who are blood-bought, this is who your God is. 
The God who brings deliverance, even with unsolicited grace, before it even comes off your lips, this is who God is. I, you know, I've been thinking about this week, uh, this, this reality this week, and just realizing just how often, uh, as a parent, I do this for my child regularly, especially the youngest one. I mean, just yesterday, twice. You know, we're going out to a track meet. I got the little guy with me. You think he packs all his stuff? No! And when does he realize he forgot his water bottle at the track meet? When he's thirsty and we're halfway home. But don't worry, buddy, I got your water bottle. I saw that sitting there. Come on, I got you. I mean, parents do this all the time for their kids. It's this pre-planned grace that God does for his people, even when they're not crying out. It might be actually a very good activity for you this week, for your soul, to sit and just ask how many times, how are the ways that God has cared for you, even when you didn't ask for it? Or even when you, you couldn't foresee this was going to happen, and when it, something happens, you go, wow, God knew exactly what was going to happen. He had all this planned. As we were driving home from Florida a couple weeks ago, I, I take the night shift, and uh, one, I have this, this uh, list on, on Spotify that it's, it's like, I call it my road trip list, and it, it's a mixture of songs. So I came to faith uh, when I was 23, so I, I grew up on like 80s rock and stuff, like, it's like Twisted Sister and Metallica, and, but also like Billy Joel and like things like this, right? Ario Speedwagon and uh, White Zombie, and, like that type of stuff. Okay, so I have a mix of like half of it's that song, those types of songs, and then half of them are like uh, Fernando Ortega and Matt Boswell and things like that, right? So I'm driving through the middle of the night, everybody's sleeping, and the, the last two years, it's just been such sweet, sweet times with the Lord. Because, you know, you know how music has this ability to kind of stir, like stir up memories in your soul. Right? And a lot, of, a lot of my past life I don't really think about, but there's nothing, nowhere to go. You know, it's the middle of the night, I'm sitting there driving, and these songs, you know, something will come up uh, from some 80s rock song, and all these memories will come up, which is just like, some of them are like, oh, that, that was crazy, and some of them are just like, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And then Fernando Ortega comes on. I am the good shepherd. You know that song? I love it, right? <laughs> he said, not the way you just sang it. Well, give me, give me another chance. <laughs> and what it does for my soul is remind me, God, you, I was not seeking after you. I was, I, was, I was miserable growing up, but I was still fine just chasing my own way. And yet, in your kindness, you came running after me again and again and again. And God gave me such sweet times just thinking about the ways God preserved me, the way God prepares things and protects us from different things. Uh, there, was a, there was a time coming out of an elder meeting that, you know, like, you know I'm about to get in my car and uh, I have a, this quick like 20 second conversation with one of the other elders, quick, uh, kind of off the cuff. Got in our car, I drove up a block, down a block, and boom, right in, right in front of me, 
there's this car gets, there's a ma major crash and one car goes overturned on top of its head, right? And I just, like, my first thought was like, dude, if I did not have that quick conversation, I was right getting T-boned right there. I mean, just think of how many times God preserves you. The fact that you're sitting here with breath is amazing. Like God's grace is going before you, even in the hard things. I mean, when we moved down to Chicago uh, for seminary, like we ended up losing a ton of money to the point where we were like, we, we got to move home. We were trying to sell our condo. It was right in the crash of, you know, early parts of the crash back in the early, you know, 2000, early 2000s. And that was wonderful. Like we lost a lot. It was hard. But we look back and go, God prepared that for us. God taught us so much. This is the type of God that we serve, the God who, who prepares grace for us for when we need it. We think of as a church. I mean, we've gone through some hard things at times. We went through a hard season in 2018, if you remember. And what happened right before that hard season? A church merger. That was God's kindness to us. And I, I look back many times going, God, you're so kind to us to know exactly what we need in the moment and promise to care for us like that. And so I think of two particular people, types of people, that this reality of our God can be so good for the soul. Like I already mentioned, the spiritually tired. There, there are times, I don't know if you experienced it, but I sure do, where all of a sudden I just feel like I cannot do this anymore. How am I going to make it to the end of the pilgrimage? And it just feels like sin and temptation and your own faults just, just bam, bam, like the crashing waves. And you're just tired. You just go, I don't, I don't think I can make it. I just feel like I'm just playing the game here. I'm just so dry. How can I keep going? And to know that we have a God who promises to give us grace when we need it, who prepares us, for the moment. I mean, last week would be an example. I, something hit me on Friday. I don't know what it was. Not this past Friday, but the Friday prior. That I would say I entered into one of the darkest spiritual like seasons I've had in a long time. I don't know what it was from. It came on Friday afternoon. And it lasted. I remember sitting right there on Sunday. Just There was a time where I just felt like, I, I, don't, I hear everybody else singing. Do people believe this stuff? I mean, I believe it, but... Why? This is so dark. Just like clouds are hanging over me. But it was that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, that was incredibly helpful for my soul. You know those lines, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And you who are blood-bought, beloved of God, that's what God promises to do for you. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, no one is going to snatch you out of my hand. And my Father has you in his hand, and nobody's going to snatch you out of his hand. You are doubly held Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is amazing that, that we can know that God will prepare every moment for us, 
He will have the grace for us when we need it. And of course, the anxious soul. If this passage, the reality of this passage is true, that God delivers us with unsolicited grace, and you put that next to a promise like Romans 8, 28, that God works together all things for good for those who love God and are called according to purpose to shape us into the image of Jesus. If, this, if that's true, then where in the world does anxiety have a foothold for, in us? Like, where's there space for anxiety? I'm an anxious person. Now, I don't know how you're anxious, but I'm typically anxious about health or the safety of my family. So if I get like some like muscle twitch, my mind goes crazy. Once I, I was look, looking in the mirror and I realized my smile was not perfectly symmetrical. And it was, my mind was crazy for a couple of days. How's it look today? <laughs> it was, so what happens though is I, I start thinking of all these scenarios of what could happen and they could happen. I could get some crazy disease and die. Somebody could try to come break into our house and try to harm our family. That, that could really happen. But th what happens is I get all nervous about that because when I think about that, God's not there. I don't, I don't just look at this, uh, like this possibility and insert God's power. I don't look at that possibility and say, yeah, but God will prepare grace for me. I'll be able to get through it. It's all God's absent. And somehow I'm left out to dry. And that's why it's so scary. But if it was true... That yes, that could happen, and if it does happen, God's going to work it together for my good. God will prepare exactly what I need for the moment. And even if I don't have a, a word coming off my lips asking for help, God will provide the exact help I need. But see, the problem with the anxious person is, I want the help that I think I need, not the help that, uh, that God thinks I need. You see, I, I want to be the one in control. And so we're actually about to sing a song, uh, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And for the anxious person, that is a hard song to sing from the heart. But that might be a good way to respond to God this morning. Say, so, you know what, God? Yeah, I, I'm scared of this world. But I want to say once again today, not my will, yours be done. I believe you are the God who is smart enough, wise enough, faithful enough, and good enough to actually give me the grace I need when I need it. Now, as we move to the Lord's Supper, we should be reminded that this, this reality about who God is, it should be great news. But it's also terrifying. It's especially terrifying for those who don't know God. You see, for, those, uh, for the people in Samson's time, this was good news for Israel. It wasn't good news for Philipp, uh, the Philistines. They rejected God. The judgment of God was about to fall on them. And so this reality is, it's not a promise for the whole world to enjoy. It's just a promise for those who know the son that was greater than Samson. The one who brings a greater del deliverance than just deliverance from the Philistines. The one who rescues us from sin and death. The ones who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and are secure before God in him. This promise is great news for them. For the rest, those who reject Jesus, judgment awaits for them. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, let us consider how Christ himself has secured this promise for us, that we know God as Father, the one who knows what we need before we ask of him. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, we invite you to the table. Um,
This is not about perfection, but about direction, walking in faith before God. Uh, if you're here this morning and you do not proclaim Jesus as Lord or live for him, uh, then we ask you not to partake of the, of the Lord's Supper. The scriptures say it would be bad for your soul. Uh, but if you're a follower of Christ and are seeking to walk in faith with him, then we invite you to the table this morning. Again, come grab the elements and then return to your seats and we will partake together. Let's be reminded this morning that we do not deserve any kindness from God. We deserve God's judgment. And yet, in God's kindness, we receive his grace. Not because of how we lived this week or how we lived last week, but because Jesus himself was broken on our behalf. And that is who we look to for the security and the promise. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. The pilgrimage is difficult. The struggle is real, doubting the promises of God. And one day the struggle will be over. God will get us to that eternal shore, to the eternal city. And we know it not because we will be strong to endure. We are not strong to endure. But God's grace and his commitment to the covenant is by far better than ours is. He secured it with the blood of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant. Drink this as often, or do this as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we thank you that you are gracious, righteous, faithful, powerful. What kindness that you would deliver us with unsolicited grace. God, give us hearts that stand in awe and worship of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.